Here's the bin. Here's the bin. <coughs> hey, neighbor. Here's the bin. Here's the bin. Be polite. Here's the bin. That bit? You can make him do anything I please. Thank you for the toast. That was a very nice neighbor. Did he hurt your little face? <laughs> <laughs> I feel better. <laughs> hey! <laughs> I have something for you. Would you excuse us all for a moment, please? Excuse us, por favor. Chris Gowser here with Matt Owl. On this episode of The First Star, Matt and I are going to talk Eternals. No indefinite article, Matt. It's not The Eternals, which I think I've been calling it for the entire year. But it's just Eternals. And then we're going to discuss the latest film by Wes Anderson, who just delivers, Matt, these wonderful little films filled with ennui, which I think is a funny thing. Well, ennui is supposed to be boredom, though, right? I'm not sure. We'll get into all that. But we're talking French Dispatch. We'll tell you what's coming up on physical media, featuring your streaming and straight-to-DVD picks of the week. And then Matt and I will share our five favorite Wes Anderson characters. All of that and more. I cannot tell you how excited I am. This is the last time we're going to have to hear the Eternals trailer. Five years ago, Thanos erased half of the population of the universe. But the people of this planet brought everyone back with a snap of a finger. The sudden return of the population provided the necessary energy for the emergence to begin. How long do we have? Seven days. Eternals. We came here 7,000 years ago to protect humans from the deviants. It's finally here, Matt, and we can no longer have to sit through that trailer. I'm telling you, it was at the beginning of every movie I've seen, I think, for the past nine months. And it's so thankfully, it's, it's finally over. But Eternals is here, Matt. The film itself, though. So granted, I'm a little tired of the trailer, but maybe the movie's better. Maybe I'm actually going to like it. I've been struggling with the MCU for a while now, Matt, saying over and over again that it's the same thing basically over and over. But uh, I, of course, I have a question for you. But first, what is Eternals all about? The Eternals are a race of uh, aliens who are sent to Earth to protect um, humanity from a race of aggressive aliens known as the Deviants. They progress on aging for thousands of years when they have to prepare for some great world-ending calamity that's going to happen in, as Salma Hayek said, seven days. Fantastic, man. Okay, so let me ask you, is Eternals 
the epic odyssey Jack Kirby always intended it to be? Could it be the necessary step in the maturation of the franchise and its audience? Or is it, Matt, as we originally feared, just a gorgeous bore? Well, Chris, um, as often happens with this show, it's somewhere between all of that. Um, There is elements of each of those things in this film. I don't think... Look, folks, I'll be honest with you. This is not top-tier Marvel for me. There are parts of this that are just left me cold. The opening battle I thought was very rote and pretty boring. A lot of the flashbacks in Babylon I thought were pretty forced and kind of cringeworthy almost. But there are parts of this that I really enjoyed. I thought some of the character development in this and some of the questions they were asking I thought was very interesting. Mm-hmm. I bought a lot of the relationships and the acting. And there are some absolutely incredible looking shots and scenes in this, which is all the more confounding by some really step back in the visual effects departments for a Marvel movie. It's kind of all over the place. I didn't hate it. I think it's better than its 53% Rotten Tomatoes score, but I don't think it would make top five, top 10 for me. Yeah, I certainly wouldn't slide it in the top five, but that's interesting. I think you and I had very different experiences with this film then. Because some of the stuff that you enjoyed, I did not care for. And the stuff that you the, you did not care for, I actually enjoyed. So <laughs> I never, I feel like it never really attains the epic scope that it's trying to go for. But what I appreciate about it is that it clearly, I think, expands the MCU sandbox here. So we do have the introduction of some new heroes, right? And we don't get any kind of, what, cameo appearances. Nobody really pops in. At some mm-hmm. point, which I, I I appreciated honestly, we have tortured even secret villains in this film, and it's not bound by the traditional MCU tropes. I really don't think it is. I will say, I think the attempt at characterization for our team is a bit lacking. I also thought that our lead Gemma Chan, who plays Cersei, does not deliver the most naturalistic performance I've seen in recent times. A lot of times I felt like she was on the outside of all of this kind of looking in. Now, maybe that's her choice. Maybe that she wanted to display that because she feels now more like an earthling than an eternal at this point, I guess. But then I see her interact with Madden's Icarus and their total just lack of smolderingness, which I don't think is even a word. I'm not so sure that that was the call she made, you know, or if it was, it may have been a mistake. Because those two have little to no chemistry whatsoever. But I think it takes a while to get going. I think once it finally does, when, particularly when we get to Nanjiani and Keo, I think it's a blast. I think it actually kind of picks up steam and is a lot of fun. I think the stakes are certainly sufficient, right? And the main conflict our heroes need to defeat is cool. I mean, it's a fun and different idea, and I don't want to get into it because I don't want to spoil anything because I think that Zhao really handles that reveal of what's really happening in this film very well, and I think it really upped my investment in this, and it really made it an entertaining experience for me. And then I will say I enjoyed Brian Tyree Henry and Don Lee, who I think are two of the more charismatic actors we have working today. And I always, it's when they're at a moment, Matt, for me, when I see them pop up, I'm like, oh, good, this is going to be good. Right? I mean, I first saw Don Lee in Train to Busan, which he's great in. And Brian Tyree Henry, I'm trying to think the very first film I saw him in. 
and I guess it's going to have to be the one that really blew me away with him would be um, Beale Street. He plays this little, he has this little side arc that pops in there that is just uh, stunning and absolutely riveting performance. So, yeah. And in the end, Matt, I think maybe even the real heart of the film is Karun, which is, you know, his Nanjiani's valet. I think he's the one that really adds the emotional depth that this film needs. Uh, I don't matter. I, I, I found a lot to enjoy in this thing. Yeah, I did too. I, again, I don't think I'm disagreeing with anything you're saying. I think, you know, I, I don't hold it against them as far as, I think you're right. I think Jimma Chan and to an extent, Angelina Jolie are some of the weaker points of this film. Cause especially Angelina Jolie is kind of just doing her thing that we've seen her do for so many of her roles, mm-hmm. but I don't know. Like I didn't even, I didn't even mind the relationship between Richard Madden and Jimma Chan. I mean, they're supposed to be 10,000 years old. I mean, how do you have a a girlfriend for 5,000 years and then not have a girlfriend for a thousand, you know? So I, I I guess, how do you put yourself into that headspace or whatever? So I think it makes a lot more sense, especially as things go forward. So I didn't hold any of that against them. I think if I had one question of why he was even there was Kit Harrington. Like I know why he was there to introduce, I don't think I'm, spoiling anything the possibility of a black knight in the future but right as a character if for serving the story he served basically no purpose yeah i think i think the strength of this film is on the acting performances it is on the relationships between all of them i think the final fight is very exciting i loved seeing mercari as a speedster fighting basically superman it was kind of like what you would hope to see from a flash superman fight kind of thing mm. I think the last, when Arsham shows up for the last time, I thought that was an incredible shot. You know, like I said, I think the deviants don't look particularly good. I think they look very computer generated. They kind of took me out of it a little bit. But I think overall, I think all of the the, the actors in this are solid. And I think, again, I think it asks a lot of really interesting questions, you know, about your duty versus your what you owe to people that you care for and care for you. And one life now worth 10 in the future. Those kinds of things are questions you don't necessarily get. I mean, there's a lot more, as much as a comic book movie can manage, there's a lot more gray stakes in this where it's not like, you know, your past Avengers where right is right and they're going to go forward kind of thing. Yeah. I thought it was overall pretty good. I mean, like I said, it does have its stumbling blocks, but I think it was a pretty solid film. I don't get why all the hate it's getting, at least from critics. Yeah. I don't get that either. Especially I'm surprised that it's performing so poorly on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah. I I think that's where I may have misunderstood you. I felt like overall the performance in this, everything was kind of just, okay. And really nothing to write home about outside of what I had previously mentioned. And there's a couple things, too, I thought are odd, just some decisions they make in the film. I'm curious your opinion on. Why do they hold no grudge against Kingo at the end of the film, since he kind of just walks away from everything? The way I interpreted it is he is torn between doing what he thinks is right, but he's not going to go against people that he cares about. Mm -hmm. And again, if you've been around for millennia, you're probably, and these are the only people that you've related to for 10,000 years, you probably will give them a bit of leeway. I guess, but the other thing too that's weird for me is I I never really felt so much that they all truly kind of care for each other, regardless of the numerous scenes of tear-filled eyes that we have in this. I mean, they really go for some waterwork stuff, some emotional pulls in this film that never really seemed to hit home for me for the most part. Uh, maybe with Tyree Henry and his family with him, you know, leaving for the fight type of a thing, I guess, but I'm not 
sure. I never really got a feel that they've all been, you know, and maybe, and maybe you know, maybe that's my fault, Matt, because they've been separated now for a thousand years. So they're all different people, maybe type of right. a thing. Right. I think really this one thing that can hamper this film is that there's a lot of them. There's a lot of characters that they got to focus on. And just by the very conceit of who they are, there's a lot of history and there's a lot of stuff that goes unsaid and you have to kind of fill in the blanks and try to just go in with what they tell you. So that, that can seem unsatisfying, but I was fine with it. I guess. So there's one question I keep wondering about, man, because I feel like one of the big successes of Eternals is that it represents a maturation of the franchise and for the audience. It's one of the things I think, like, I know this is, may sound weird, but like the Harry Potter series, particularly the books, right? They got darker and more mature as you read them because you were getting older. And I feel like maybe that's the turn that the Eternal, that Eternals has taken. That as kids get older and their tastes get more sophisticated, you know, that we're going to deal with some heavier subjects. There's also like this whole hubbaloo online about the introduction of a air quotes sex scene, which I think at this point for the MCU means you can see the top roughly what seven, eight percent of a man and woman's naked body together mm. getting freaky. But right? there's That's some implied thrusting in there. Very fair. <laughs> But I mean, you'd never seen that before. So like, that's kind of how I look at the Eternals, not just conceptually, but that we're kind of bringing, you know, we're maturing a little bit now as a franchise. And if that's the case of where we're going, then I'm uh, kind of excited to see where the future holds when before I was kind of like, oh, look, it's another MCU movie. Well, what's interesting is that the the MC, the next MCU movie we're going to get in a couple months, the one that I've been waiting for all year long is probably the complete opposite of that it's going to be like a a complete zany like what a what a fanboy kid would want for and i'm all on board for it but didn't you see i think i don't know i thought i saw this online yesterday that holland said this is a very dark story there's a lot of sadness in it and i'm like okay oh great is that what we is (laughs) they're learning the, the wrong things from dc yeah and their massive success yeah Fine. Um, a couple other things I want to say. I'm ultimately disappointed by the Deviants, Matt. I love the character design of them. I love the concept that they can evolve and learn. But in the end, I feel like they're just regulated to background characters, which I guess that's what has to happen the way the stories, the turns the story takes. But I would have been really interested to see kind of a continuation of Crow's story in some capacity. What do you think about the handling of the Deviants? Yeah, I thought they were just basically an also-ran. I think there were some interesting things that they could do with them, but there's just too much going on. There's, there's That's, I think, one of the big knocks is that there's just way too much they're trying to handle in this, and I think they get the, the short end of the stick. Yeah, it's too bad. Would have liked to have seen a little more expansion in that story. Your Scalzo score corner, Matt, I just want to briefly say, I think Rahman Jawadi delivers an engaging and at times sweeping score. I was thankful for that. It's appropriately dark then like cosmic and big, then intimate at all the right times. And unlike a lot of the scores in the MCU that kind of serve just to propel the action and are instantly forgettable for me, I think that this score actually is one of the best in the entire MCU. I really uh, enjoyed listening to this thing while the film played. Yeah, I didn't realize it was Ramon Jawadi, so I guess they really, really dipped towards the uh, Game of Thrones well for this one. This kept going back. Mm-hmm. I guess this is the first film he's done since Iron Man too in the MCU. Mm. All right, I got some MCU questions for you, Matt, and then we'll wrap it up. I'm curious to get your opinion on this. Where's Doctor Strange? So supposedly he's monitoring the Earth for threats, right? Which, But he is nowhere to be found. So, Matt, is that just a narrative convenience? Or it could be what I think, where it gives credence to my theory 
that it's not the real Doctor Strange in Spider-Man No Way Home. Honestly, it's probably mostly A, but I like B better. And let's see if they go that way. And then finally, at the end, Dane Whitman, Matt, as you had, had stated, he, he becomes eventually the Black Knight. And the key with his sword, I guess we have some spoilers for the uninitiated, is that it traps the souls of everybody it kills, right? And there's a voice that tells him at the end, off this off this disembodied off-screen voice that says, are you sure you want to do that? Are you ready for that or something to that effect? Do you know who that is? Uh, from According to Chloe Zhao, it's Blade. Yeah, so it's Marshall Ali, and it's Blade. So at some point, Blade is going to pop up, and he's going to team up with the Black Knight in some capacity. Do you think they're going to get introduced then in Eternals 2? Or do you think they'll show up a little sooner? I think Blade's supposed to come out before that, right? So maybe that's where it'll yeah. pop up. Yeah, I'm, I'm assuming they'll do something a little... I'm assuming they'll do something sooner. It'd be interesting. Are they doing their own Justice League Dark with the Marvel Knights stuff that they used to do back in the 90s? Yeah, I don't know. That'd be interesting to see. And so is the Black Knight... Are they going to go after the... Uh, I don't know if the kidnap is the right term, but the Eternals who end up kind of disappearing in a certain way at the end of the movie? More spoilers, I guess? Yeah, um, I don't know. It's a good question. I guess we'll find out. I guess we will. All right, Matt, anything else? No, what's your score? I am going to give Eternals a B. Me too. I was actually really surprised. I thought we were going to go lower than that, but uh, I'm pleased that you gave it a B. Yeah, it was. I, I enjoyed this thing. Like I said, a little kind of stumbles a little bit in the beginning, but I think once it gets going, it's interesting. A lot of heady concepts. A little deeper than most of the MCU films. A lot to think about. And some great views and effects. There is one character who's introduced in the in the mid credit sequence where I think the uh, special effects get a little dodgy. Yeah. When the little guy shows up, that looked really fake to me. But uh, outside of that, I thought overall it was pretty good. And it was cool to see the Celestials on the big screen, I got to admit. All right. If you had a chance to see Eternals, we'd love to hear your thoughts. Shoot us an email at feedback at thefirstrun.com. Matt, coming up on Blu-ray and DVD, your physical media picks for this upcoming Tuesday, November 16th. There is a UHD, mostly, set coming out. And I was thinking about buying this, but the more I've looked at it, I don't know if I, I need to get this. But if it gets cheap enough, you never know, especially when, when you know, we're talking about May. It's a seven. What suit? Um, diamonds. Uh, no, no, wait, um, hearts. Oh my God, seven of hearts, you're right. <laughs> hey, Ash, I guessed the card right. Yeah, truly amazing, Linda. I don't know, I don't know, but I think it's really some sort of extra sense or something, you know, like ESP? Okay, try this. Okay, um, it's a seven. I don't believe it! Of spades. <laughs> Queen of spades. Four of hearts. Eight of spades, two of spades, jack of diamonds, jack of clubs! Why have you disturbed our sleep? Awakened us from our ancient slumber? You will die! Like the others before you. One by one we will take you. Woo, that sounds rough, Matt. Of course, that is from the classic Evil Dead. Matt, they're putting out a UHD Evil Dead collection. So you get the 4Ks of parts one and two. 
And then you get the Blu-rays of the entire series, right? The uh, Ash versus the Evil Dead show. And then a DVD of some special features. It comes with a book as well and a cool-looking box. It's called the Groovy Collection. But it does not include Army of Darkness because it's our different distributor, right? And uh, I just don't know if I need to... I don't think I'm ever going to upgrade my Evil Deads to 4K. I mean, how good are those films really going to look? How good could they possibly look? So I don't know. I, I just Maybe if it was super cheap, Matt, but outside of that, I just don't know if there's enough here. Basically, it's just a repackaging. You can get all the stuff, of course, outside of Army of Darkness. And also the new Evil Dead isn't included either because it's strictly focused on just Bruce Campbell. So do you have any of them in uh, Blu-ray or 4K, Matt? No, I don't i don't here's the thing i i like the evil dead but i don't love the evil dead by a lot of people and it really kind of i get very jaded by the amount of times that this thing gets re-released like come on guys how many times are you going to go back to the well to try and like take money from the nerds let's quit being so greedy yeah i mean this thing is speaking of which you know bruce campbell's in a hallmark movie this weekend i know i saw that on twitter (laughs) i cannot wait to watch that so that'll be good. Also coming up, Candyman. This is the new version by Nia DaCosta. Includes an alternate ending, deleted and extended scenes, and a couple making of featurettes. The Disney film Jungle Cruise is getting released with a steelbook from Best Buy, a digipack from Target. This is based, of course, on the theme park ride. There are 11 deleted scenes. Uh, I like to say the delete deleted. Some people say deleted. There's outtakes. There's a featurette called Dwayne and Emily. Undoubtedly funny. I have my questions about that. There is a feature at two on the production of the ride itself, which, Matt, I got to admit, I'm kind of interested in watching. And you can also join a panel of the skippers at the Disneyland Resort as they reminisce about the rewards, challenges, surprises they've experienced while helming the world-famous Jungle Cruise attraction. So I'm more interested, I think, Matt, in the actual park stuff than I am the film itself. I have not seen it. Have you seen Jungle Cruise yet? I, I have not. It should be on Disney Plus any time now, though. Yeah, momentarily, I think. Uh, the Eyes of Tammy Faye is being released, starring Jessica Chastain as Ms. Faye. This is a story of her and uh, Jim Baker as they seek redemption after a religious empire and marriage crumbles. Prisoners of the Ghost Land. This is a Nick Cage film. It's getting released in a 4K steelbook. And that's all I'm able to find for a 4K release is a steelbook. It's not great. There seems to be a weird push for it for people to check it out. But I think Matt, you and I were kind of underwhelmed by it. It does not live up to the promise of its plot. It does not. Uh, the HBO documentary, The Bee Gees, How You Can Mend a Broken Heart, is coming out on physical media. I got to check this out. I'm a big Bee Gees fan, too. I have not yet to see that. Yakuza Princess, set in the expansive Japanese community of Sao Paulo in Brazil, the largest Japanese dysphoria in the world. The Yakuza Princess follows Akima, an orphan who discovers she is an heiress to the half of the Yakuza crime syndicate. Matt, are you a Bee Gees fan? I like their hits. I'm not big into their deep cuts, but I did watch that 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 uh, documentary. It was really good. I think I requ- I recommended it on a streaming pick of the week uh, a few months ago. Yeah. Well, there you go. The Lost Leonardo. It's a documentary around about the mystery surrounding the Salvatore Mundi, the first painting by Da Vinci to be discovered for more than a century, which has now seemingly gone missing. Shutter's caveat is being released. A lone drifter suffering from partial memory loss accepts a job to look after a psychologically troubled woman in an abandoned house on an isolated island. Man, how just desperate can we make the circumstances in the middle of a snowstorm 
with no running water and wolves circling the cabin. Includes director's commentary, a producer's commentary, and more. Kino Lorber is releasing Wife of a Spy, a Japanese merchant who leaves his wife behind in an order to travel to Manchuria where he witnesses an act of barbarism. His subsequent actions cause misunderstanding, jealousy, and legal problems for his wife. Sony is releasing Our Ladies. In 1990s Scotland, a group of Catholic schoolgirls get an opportunity to go into Edinburgh for a choir competition, but they're more interested in drinking, partying, and hooking up than winning the competition. We call it the Matt Howell story. Sean Penn helmed Flag Day is being released. He plays a father who lives a double life as a counterfeiter, bank robber, and con man in order to provide for his daughter. Crypto Zoo is an animated film featuring Peter Stormare, Michael Sarah, Lake Bell, and Jason Schwartzman. Crypto Zoo keepers try to capture Baku, a dream-eating hybrid creature of legend, and start wondering if they should display these beasts or keep them hidden and unknown. 1091 Media is releasing Runt. Cal and Cecily are bullied high school students, Matt, who turn to revenge to settle scores with their tormentors. With no one to turn to, they spiral into a downward cycle of misguided violence. New to Blu-ray, Paramount is releasing a couple films. Vanilla Sky, the Tom Cruise version, the brand new 4K restoration with a uh, filmmaker focus featuring a discussion about Cameron Crowe. Audio commentary featuring Cameron Crowe and Nancy Wilson, an alternate ending, and more. They're also releasing Ragtime with a brand new 4K restoration. That's the film about the proud black musician who rebels against racism in turn of the century in New York. Matt, this one's for you. Are you ready? I'm, I'm assuming that, si- that silence is a yes. Criterion is yes, releasing <laughs> Once Upon a Time in China. All five films, the Jet Li classics getting brand new 4K restorations for the first three films and then 2K restorations for parts four and five. Alternate stereo Cantonese soundtracks, uh, 2K digital transfer of, of Once Upon a Time in China and America, new interviews, deleted scenes, documentaries, new English subtitle translations, and more. Have you seen any of the Once Upon a Time in China films? I never have, but I've heard great things about them. Uh, I have not seen any of them, no. I'm considering blind buying them right now because uh, the Criterion sale at Barnes & Noble is running 50% off. I want to get that maybe and then Citizen Kane. Because I think I only own Citizen Kane on DVD. I'd like upgrade to that Criterion UHD. Arrow is releasing The Far Country from 1944 featuring Jimmy Stewart. You get this in two different aspect ratios on two discs. 1.851 and 2.001. Brand new 4K restoration from the original film elements. New audio commentaries and more. Warner Archive is also releasing the Liz Taylor classic National Velvet. And then Some Come Running featuring Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, and Shirley MacLaine. Shout Factory is releasing David Cronenberg's Madam Butterfly. The brand new audio commentary. Kino Lorber is releasing Breakheart Pass from 1975 featuring Charles Bronson. Another Bronson film, Chato's Land from 1972. Gets a brand new 2K restoration. And then they're releasing Night as a Thousand Eyes featuring Edward G. Robinson. Among the Living, featuring Albert Decker and Susan Hayward, and The Accused, featuring Loretta Young and Robert Cummings. All new commentaries included on in each one of those three releases. Criterion Matt is also releasing Mulholland Drive in 4K. I picked this up in one of the last few Blu-ray sales, so I will not be upgrading it, but you can pick up Mulholland Drive from Criterion in UHD now. They're also releasing, not they, but I say a UHD release of the Mad Max anthology Matt is coming out. So you can get all four films in 4K. Best Buy is going to have steel books of each one. There'll also be breakouts because previously unavailable in 4K were the Road Warrior and Thunderdome. We talked about the Evil Dead collection. There is a Ron steel book UHD from Best Buy. 
And then Maniac Cop 2 and 3 are being released in UHD as well. But Matt, you're straight to DVD pick of the week. I'm going to go with Never Back Down, Revolt. You know how many Never Back Down films there have been? You know, we talk about Sniper every now and then, where it's released the 30th film in the franchise. I had right. no idea there were this many. Not a lot, just four. But I had no idea there were four Never Back Down movies. A woman who is kidnapped and forced to compete in an elite underground fight, and she has to battle her way to freedom. Matt, what should we be streaming this week? Well, it's funny you talk about Once Upon a Time in China, because I'm going to talk about the greatest Western ever made, arguably, which is Once Upon a Time in the West. It's available on Hulu and Paramount+. Plus. It is Sergio Leone's uh, classic Western. Dare I say it? Maybe even better than the films in the Dollar Trilogy. I think Chris would agree with me on that as well. I would. I actually had never seen it, but I watched it upon your recommendation, like, what, 10 years ago? Mm-hmm. if not longer. And I absolutely loved it. I totally agree with your assessment of it as well. And I think what's also, I think, on Netflix now, which I have always wanted to check out and I haven't, is Once Upon a Time in America, which is Leone's American gangster film. Mm. Uh, it's not the director's cut, I believe, but still, it's something I've been wanting to check out for a while. All right, Matt, let's keep rolling then. Let's spend a few minutes and talk about Wes Anderson's latest film, The French Dispatch. Go tell your parents you're home. They're worried. I'm expected back on the barricades. I didn't see any barricades. Well, we're still constructing them. Uh-huh. What are you writing? Our manifesto. I told them not to invite Paul, by the way. Maybe you're sad, but you don't seem lonely to me. Exactly. I saw you at the protest on top of a bookcase taking notes. Is there a story in us? For the people of Kansas? Maybe. Then you should study our resolutions. Or anyway, will you proofread it? My parents think you're a good writer. Give it to me. It's a little damp. Physically or metaphorically? Both, based on the cover and the first four sentences. Don't criticize my manifesto. Oh, you don't want remarks? I don't need remarks, do I? I only asked you to proofread it because I thought you'd be even more impressed by how good it already is. Let's start with the typos. That, of course, is Timothée Chalamet. Because he has the accent, right? Over Timothy, Timothée. So is that how I should say it? I have no idea. (laughs) Tim Chalamet and Francis McDormand feature in that segment of The French Dispatch. Matt, it's a sneaky anthology film about a magazine framed around the death of its beloved publisher, played by an immensely, as always, likable Bill Murray, which is based on Harold Ross, the revered co-founder of The New Yorker magazine. So following his passing, Matt, the magazine must instantly cease publication outside of his obituary and then some reprints of some of the best stories the magazine has run. And this is a visual representation or telling of those stories. Matt, Anderson's films have long been kind of ensemble pieces now for a while, right? Ever since, what, I guess his second film, right? Outside of Bottle Rocket? Mm -hmm. And it's always fun seeing who's going to pop up next. But this kind of different anthology film, what did you think of The French Dispatch? Is it another big success for Anderson? His ennui, his cuteness, his sense of joy and everything that he writes and just his cleverness? Or is it just a little bit too much this time out the game? This is the mental note I made myself as I'm watching this is this is the most Wes Anderson film of all Wes Anderson films. And I, as much as I enjoy a lot of his films, I don't think that's a good thing here. It's really uneven um it left me cold in a lot of spots i didn't think it was as cute or as clever as it thinks it is and i think a lot of the tropes 
that he just kind of uses and his films are known for that he just takes to the nth degree really get grading and really wear thin really fast. I just, that's interesting. So I have issues with the film, but I don't think it's so much that, right? I think it's more that a lot of the stories here, there's three main shorts or three main featurettes or whatever you want to call it here, right? And unfortunately, two of those three just aren't that engaging and they weren't entirely too long and they're slight and a little dull, which I think is a big problem, obviously. Now, I want to let's break down each one, Matt. So the first one that pops us is pops up as a cyclic reporter or cyclic. Is it cyclic? It features Owen Wilson. It's I think the shortest of the bunch. It's sweet. It's slight. And it's hilarious. It's about Wilson is it's his personal essay as he takes a tour of this changing city ennui, and it's the perfect capsule I think of Anderson's work, and possibly I think the best in the series, or this entire film I should say. And if I had to show somebody Matt like a representation of Wes Anderson's work within like six minutes, like a, then I would just show them this because I think it captures everything brilliantly, and it's a lot of fun. And I actually enjoyed it. What were your thoughts on the Cyclic Reporter? Yeah, I agree with you. It's the best one and it's way too short. Um, but I think you're right. It is. If you're taking my criticism, if it's the most, this is the whole thing is the most Wes Anderson film of Wes Anderson's films, then this shows the best of that. Yeah. So, and then you have the concrete masterpiece. Now I think maybe it's best that I don't get too deep into what each, what each of these are. So you'll be able to kind of get the full experience of watching them. I think this one is conceptually interesting. It's kind of a sardonic take on Banksy. I feel in a way. Mm -hmm. And out of all of them, I think this is the most Wes Anderson-y of the stories. I believe it's the longest. And I think he really gets to play with this one. But at times, it just felt just a little too much. It's a hat on top of a hat on top of a hat. And though there are aspects of this I enjoyed, I mean, I always enjoy myself some Benicio Del Toro and Elias Sado. And then, of course, Adrian Brody is in this one as well. It's okay, but I think it just runs entirely too long. I don't know. What are your thoughts on the concrete masterpiece? Yeah, I think it um, it has its parts that are enjoyable. Um, it has it's weird because it just kind of vacillates between these long stretches of looks and quiet and like deadpan faces, and then it'll just switch to this over the top zaniness um, to kind of juxtapose against that. It didn't really work for me. It left me pretty cold. I think it's better than what follows, but it's not great. Oh, agreed. Revisions to a Manifesto, which is the clip we just heard with Timothée and Francis McDormand, is the weakest of the bunch. That one, I think almost we could have excised entirely from the film. It was, I don't know, Matt. I just, I don't know how much I even want to talk about it. I think it's probably one of the weakest works he's put out. And I stayed, I, I, I cannot stand the Darjeeling Limited. And there's nothing in this film that's as bad as that, but this approaches it. And I think that revisions to a manifesto is just, it's instantly forgettable. It's not that interesting. It's a little boring, not that funny and engaging. And even Christoph Waltz shows up, which I think was kind of cool, but I, I don't, I don't know. I don't really have much to say, which I think is an indictment in itself. Yeah. I didn't like it very much either. I think it's very, the delivery is very stilted. Everything is very off. It's very talky, but it doesn't really have anything interesting to say. I think it's just in love with the sound of its own voice, and I did not enjoy it at all. Yeah. I like that. It's in love with the sound of its own voice. Uh, you're very, quite the turn of a phrase-er kind of guy. like how I butchered that by even 
screwing that up when I said it. <laughs> and then possibly my favorite moment in any of them occurs next in the private dining room of the police commissioner. I really enjoyed this one. Perhaps mostly because of, there's two things. There's the chase scene by the river that's animated through the alleys and through the building. Matt, I thought that was brilliant. And the way that turns out, how it resolves itself, I laughed a good two plus minutes after that resolved itself. I loved that moment so much. It was just a capture, just pure joy for me. And I absolutely adored that particular segment. But I think what really sells the private dining room of the police commissioner for me is Jeffrey Wright. His role book right, I think it featured, it's the best performance of the lot of this entire film and possibly in most of Anderson's films. I think Wright is absolutely mesmerizing here as Roebuck Wright. He brings a depth and a vulnerability unmatched, I think, by any of the other performers in this film. And the subtle reveals of his private life and the way it impacts his character and how Wright inhabits each of these scenes, whether he's in his flashbacks or he's in the present moment being interviewed, Wright is mesmerizing in this film, Matt. And I absolutely was blown away by it, really. So what are your thoughts on the private dining room of the police commissioner? Yeah, um, Jeffrey Wright brings a certain bona fide to everything that he's in and he kind of elevates everything that he's in. I think he's by far the MVP of this. And I really enjoyed this last one. It was a good, strong ending to, to kind of wrap things up on and I guess save the best for last. Yeah, so... In the end, Matt, I think the whole thing feels rather slight and forgettable. And I think two of the vignettes just aren't that engaging, like we said, and they run too long. I think if you're an Anderson devotee, I think it's all here, right? I think everything you love about him is here. Let's just, and I think it's a little disappointing for me because I like Isle of Dogs, and I still think Grand Budapest Hotel is great. You know, yeah, that, is. that is his kind of what? That's his version of a horror film. And I really enjoy that one. And this is just, I would rewatch this, but I basically, I'm telling you, I'm just going to pop through. I'm going to, I'm going to chapter search with this one. Uh, but if you're a huge Anderson devotee, this may be his best work for you. It's everything you're looking for. Just maybe slightly underbaked. Any final thoughts there on? Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think it, you know, it's got a shtick. It's got a, it's got his fingerprints all over it. I think he really kind of amplified his um, tendencies quite a bit because he was telling short stories and whether that's good or bad for you, that really is up to you. I think it was more bad than good in my opinion. Yeah. And I have two, a quick shout out to AMC. Get your ass together. When I watched this, it was improperly framed. And the very bottom of the screen was cut off just a little bit. So I only saw the top half of the words. And if there's any kind of title yeah. cards or whatever it is at the bottom of the screen, I was only able to see the top half. So thankfully, I could still read it. But that's just unacceptable. So do better. All right. If you had a chance to see the French well, Dispatch. what's your grade? Oh, a good, good question. I'm glad you asked, Matt. <laughs> what is my grade? I'm giving the French Dispatch a C+. Shit, Chris, we got to stop doing this. We got to stop meeting <laughs> like this. So I'm giving it as well a C plus. Ah, this is uh, two weeks in a row where we're right down. The, we're exactly right. We're exactly mm -hmm. matched up. But you can really trust the score then if we're both I mean, it's obviously the correct score. Yeah. There's really nothing else you need to do. All right. If you had a chance to see the French Dispatch currently playing in theaters, as is the Eternals, or excuse me, as is Eternals. Just an email at feedback at the first run.com. Matt, let's close out the show and talk about our five favorite Wes Anderson characters. This should be fun. <laughs> 
this act. You don't give a $500 tip to the housekeeper. That's inappropriate. That's inexcusable. That I don't forgive. What were you thinking? What were you thinking? That's what don't she is. Don't call her the housekeeper. Don't threaten me. That's what she is. She is a housekeeper, right? People are housekeepers. You better watch it, Dignan. You don't, don't know what me. you're talking don't about right me, now. Man. Her name's Inez. And my name's Dignan, man. So what? She didn't love you, man. So, Anderson's first film, Bottle Rocket, which launched his career. And, of course, that is Owen Wilson and Luke Wilson. And I got to tell you, Matt, Dignan, Owen Wilson's character, didn't quite make the cut for me. He's probably my number seven on my list, but I've always loved his character and that film, Bottle Rocket. I remember watching that movie thinking, this is really weird, but fun and cool and odd. And I was, I could not wait to see what was going to be next from this new weird director, Wes Anderson, of course, then gave us Rushmore. All right, Matt, start us off. Who is your fifth favorite Wes Anderson character? All right, so my fifth favorite is Owen Wilson's character in the Royal Tenenbaums, Eli Cash, uh, where he walks around as this kind of flamboyant cowboy type character, which I guess, from what I understand, was based off of John McInerney and Cormac McCarthy, which I think is absolutely hilarious. But he's got like a kind of subtleness to him in, in, in like deeper levels. He's got depths to him. And I, I think while he is ridiculous and hilarious and a lot of the butt of the jokes of the film, I think at the end of the day, he's got a lot more to him. So I, I really enjoy Eli Cash. Nice. Well, you're going to enjoy our stinger this week then. So <laughs> my number five then is Klaus Daimler, Steve Zizou's first mate, the uh, German sailor who is just played by Willem Dafoe. He's an odd character, Matt, that comes more and more unhinged as he feels he's becoming more and more estranged from Bill Murray Zizou as this young man shows up and believes he is Zizou's son. And Bill Murray's character then becomes wants to spend more and more time with him, kind of blocking out Daimler, who basically then starts to go crazy about it. And it's just a weird, fun, unhinged performance. Defoe just in, perfectly grabs the madness of his character, and it's one of my favorite performances. So uh, my number five is Klaus Daimler. So my number four is Herman Bloom, um, which is Bill Murray in Rushmore. This is kind of like the role that put Bill Murray on his uh, quirky indie darling map and kind of led to a lot of other performances. But I think he's appropriately dryly funny in this. He's a little unhinged. You can tell he's just like steps away from being a complete weirdo at all times. But he's got a, a real paternal affection for um, the Max Fisher character. So I, I really, this is kind of like a... I think the kicking off point of the second part of Bill Murray's career. That's right. You know, I forget that. He, he was kind of floundering a bit right before that. Mm-hmm. And then Anderson casts him and he starts doing all these oddball independent things. And totally, I think, revitalized his career. Not that it needed revitalizing, but I think, you know, he had done what the man who knew too little, you know, he'd been doing some kind of bad comedies. So that's a good point. Uh, my number four, then I'm just continuing with theme. Steve Zizu, Bill Murray. Obsessed with killing his rare jaguar shark, Matt, that ate his best friend while they're making a new documentary. He starts wanting to hunt down and kill this shark and then all the different weird people around him. But it's I love his performance as Steve Zizou. Uh, just obsessed with finding and killing this shark. And then he is he in all the relationships that interact without him, well, around him, I should say. Uh, I don't know. I just always love, out of all the Bill Murray kind of dry, sardonic performances that he's given Wes Anderson, I think my favorite one is him as Steve Zizou. 
Yeah, it's a good pick. Did make my list. Honorable mention, but he is he is great in that film. All right, um, my number three then is uh, Rafe Fines. If you're going to say it, don't call him Ralph. Um, and Gustav from the Grand Budapest as the kind of put upon runner of the, ho- the eponymous hotel. He's kind of uh, manic, barely contained manic energy and and just kind of constant properness in the face of all this uh everything going wrong and, and around him is just uh, hilarious plus his penchant for the older ladies is is pretty is pretty funny as well <laughs> that's a good pick my number three then matt is going to be uh jason schwartzman as max fisher in rushmore the lovelorn high school student who writes these he creates these plays of these classic films just outrageous production values right uh just crazy stuff as he tries to win the affection of one of his teachers a teacher that bill murray's character herman bloom is become uh affectionate with too as well so it's it's the love triangle between the three of them but has one of my possibly favorite lines wes anderson's ever written about the or scrubs and uh yeah so max fisher's my number three all right, so my number two is the eponymous Royal Tannenbaum. Now, he by Wes Anderson, he he's known for having kind of like a stable of, of actors. And um, this is a role played by one man who showed up just once, Gene Hackman, who's becoming increasingly further and further away from acting roles. And it's you don't see very much of him anymore. And it's one of his last roles. But I think he really embodies that character. He embodies the kind of good parts of him, the bad parts. And I think he really sells that this kind of uh, good intentioned yet ultimately selfish uh, man is kind of left in the, the the damage in his wake. And he's trying to rectify himself with that. I think he's it's a great role. Good pick. So my number two then, Matt, is one that you've already selected, which is Gustav, Ray Fine's eccentric hotel manager at the Grand Budapest Hotel. His Agatha Christie by way of Edward Gorey film, Grand Budapest uh, but Fine is a delight in that film. He is a lot of fun to watch. I don't really have much more to add after what you said. But yeah, it's one of my favorite characters. You're right. His kind of subtle madness in <laughs> as he's trying to maintain everything in his proper way as everything is spiraling out of control around him. Uh, just a lot of fun to watch. So Gustav is my number two. So close this All out, right. Matt. I'm, I don't actually, I'm surprised. Well, I don't want to step on it. Who's your one? <laughs> My number one, I think, has to be Max Fisher. I think it's really mm-hmm. the quintessential role that brought Wes Anderson and, to an extent, um, yeah, Jason Schwartzman onto the map. And I think while there may be more nuanced roles later, I think there's a certain innocence and sweetness and, for lack of a better term, reality in the roles in Rushmore, whereas he seems to get more disconnected from how real people act as he continues, where I think this is kind of his last uh, kind of towing the line between both of those things. Yeah, no, that's that's a solid pick, Matt. Obviously, it was my number three, but the clear number one is Gene Hackman as Royal Tenenbaum, his tour de force performance as the reprobate and truly just disastrous father who tries to do what he can do within his limited capacity. But it is one of the most endearing, sad, and funny roles that Wes Anderson and his crew, uh, Noah Baumbach, I believe, have ever really produced. And I don't know, I think it's one of my favorite performances by Gene Hackman, a legend, a living legend who has since retired, obviously. But uh, yeah, 
I had to go with Royal Tannenbaum. There really was no other choice for me. Did you have any honorable mentions? Uh, yeah, Steve Zissou, like I mentioned, um, Edward Norton as Scoutmaster Ward in uh, Moonrise Kingdom. Mm. And um, as much as I love the Royal Tannenbaums, I think everybody's great. I thought uh, one of the only like kind of decent female characters, and as much as I'm not a fan of Gwyneth Paltrow, she's pretty good as Margot Tannenbaum in the Royal Tannenbaums. Absolutely. Those are all great picks that I would agree with. Um, a couple that I don't think you mentioned to you, I would say Atari Kobayashi from Isle of Dogs, and then Zero Mustafa from Grand Budapest Hotel. I wanted to give a quick shout out to as well. Fantastic. What are your favorite Wes Anderson characters? Shoot us an email at feedback at thefirstrun.com. Matt, coming up next week, are you excited? I know you are. You love this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you don't have to leave your house. Aren't you happy? That's true. That is that is a big selling point because um, I'm getting more and more grumpy as I age. I may, though, because I think because the following week we're supposed to do Ghostbusters Afterlife and Spencer. So I may go next week just to see Spencer. So I'm not in the theater for two movies yeah. in one week. Yeah, I but next week we'll be doing Red Notice on Netflix. Oh boy, and then Finch, <laughs> which is currently on Apple Plus, and it's what everybody looks forward to all year long. Matt, our 2021 holiday gift guide episode. Wow, it's already that time, huh? Crazy. Yeah, because Black Friday is the following uh, Thursday, right? Or is it that f- Friday? When no. is Thanksgiving this year? I don't even know. No, it's not next week. It's the week after. It's the twenty, okay. the twenty fifth. Twenty fifth. So Black Friday's the twenty sixth. Yep, and we always do the holiday gift guide that week before, that Friday before. Wow. So there you go. And of course, Matt, House of Gucci is coming. Do not deny yourself <sighs> life's simpler pleasures. <laughs> I can't. I'm so excited, guys. So excited. <laughs> Good times. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. Do a search for The First Run. Scroll, scroll, scroll. Eventually you'll find us. Head on over to Apple Podcasts and to give us a review. It'll help other people find the show and we'll read it on the air. Uh, the latest episode of Screen Run has dropped featuring our discussions with Sean about Alien 3. And we recorded last night another episode with Jason of Binge Movies discussing the audio drama of Alien 3, William Gibson's undeveloped script. So you can hear that in a couple weeks. And that's it. Matt, that's going to be the big show for this week. We're going to go ahead then and take an extended break. Take care of yourselves. Get vaccinated. We love you. Now, your previous novel. Yes. Wildcat. Right. Not a success. Why? Well... Wildcat was written in a kind of obsolete vernacular. Wildcat. 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 I'm gonna go.